0: And, um i suppose um i should begin with the at least what appears to me to be the obvious and that's the second wave um coronavirus um to hit britain um i think a second wave was um always inevitable uh, the real question um you know without being an epidemiologist is what severity Uh, the second wave was going to be Um, and it has to be said uh, that um, in terms of um, the first wave um, you know before it hit you might have thought I might have thought that Britain uh, would be in a a strong position uh, to deal with such a a virus but uh, as we've seen it wasn't Uh, We had uh, decades, both under the Tories and under New Labour, of uh, basically running hospitals on a just-in-time basis. We also had uh, the Tory government uh, under Health Minister Hunt um, ignoring uh, the wargaming exercise. I think it was called Exercise um, Signet uh, that I think was run in 2017, that basically said, look, if you get some SARS-like um, virus hitting Britain, uh, the NHS will be overwhelmed and you haven't got enough um, protective equipment. And it went on to list a whole series of recommendations, which the government then proceeded to ignore. So this isn't just about a virus. This is about the human handling uh, of a virus. Uh, and it's about this government's handling of it. Uh, And all you need to do is look at uh, Britain's Britain's position at the top of the league table when it comes to the rate of infection, uh, when it comes to the death rate, uh, to see how badly uh, the British government was prepared for and then handled uh, this virus. So we've seen the farcical uh, track and trace. We've seen the, the chopping and changing. Um, but uh, we still see uh, the infections and we still see the deaths. Now, you would have thought uh, that having eventually locked down, um, they would be in a good position uh, to handle um, the next wave because until you actually get um, a vaccine, there always was going to be a second wave, either from within side Britain Um, or from abroad. That's just an inevitability. Um, So again, when we look at what's going on at the moment, you know, is uh, Britain handling this well or is it handling it badly? I I think, again, you have to conclude uh, that things are being handled uh, badly. I mean, sending uh, students back to college um, on the basis that, well, presumably the universities were keen on that uh, not because they want to uh, teach students, uh, but because they rely on the students uh, paying uh, and uh, not only for tuition fees, but also paying uh, uh, for rents. Um, so the government was uh, um, you know, determined to, to, quote unquote, get back to normal as quickly as possible. Um, and given the preparations that weren't in place, uh, as I said, the, the second wave was was inevitable. What's different about um, now, though, is the political divisions um, overhandling uh, the second wave. You know, a lot of people on the left, I think, quite rightly criticised Keir Starmer uh, for the uh, quote unquote constructive opposition. Uh, This was clearly an attempt by Starmer to emphasise the uh, we're under new leadership regime. Um, presenting the Labour Party as a safe pair of hands, um, a reliable um, second 11 uh, uh, for capitalism and all the rest of it. Now we're in a very different uh, position. And you can't even say, I think, that there's a clear Labour position. What you can say is that Starmer and the Northern mayors, in particular uh, uh, Andy Burnham, um uh, are uh, in a position of actual opposition uh, to the government the reason why i say that the labor position that clear is there's been rebellions but there's also Sadiq Khan um, in london as far as i can see uh, basically going along uh, with with the government now from our angle um, it's not just a question of uh, you know giving uh, the the government technical, Uh, advice. Uh, We do need our own uh, program. And I think that the the program that we uh, uh, need is one of saying that it's um, capital uh, that should take the hit and not not workers. It is a program of saying that we put need um, uh, above um, surplus uh, value Um, It is about actually also um, demanding uh, production on the basis of need. So I know that the um, NHS has taken over um, private hospitals, uh, for example, uh, but that had nothing to do uh, with any sort of program of, um, you know, strengthening the NHS. It was actually about rescuing uh, the private medical um, um, sector. Um, in other words, they face bankruptcy if the NHS didn't uh, take, take them over. Um, from our point of view, we'd also be emphasising the question of retraining, if you take things like the airline um, industry. Um, and yeah, in that sense, uh, channeling uh, people to useful things, uh, not least uh, into the uh, NHS, which we don't know, but one can certainly suspect will face a crisis uh, this this winter. All you need to have is COVID-19, second wave, which is what we've got, um, and uh, 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 um, a widespread outbreak of flu, uh, and you would expect um, the NHS um, to buckle um, under those those, uh, circumstances. Having said that, I don't think that we can simply turn around and say uh, that uh, capitalism uh, can't cope uh, with COVID-19. I think that's far too uh, simplistic. Um, All we need to do um, is look at China, whatever you want to call China, I don't know, some sort of hybrid um, social formation. Uh, But clearly, uh, not only have they got big capitalist Uh, uh, firms and uh, homegrown billionaires, Uh, they've also got, um, how should you put it, Uh, a thriving um, petty bourgeois uh, sector and small capitalist uh, sector. And yet, if you look at China, uh, it handled uh, the outbreak of COVID-19. I don't know how many cases there are currently in China, uh, but I would suspect a great deal uh, fewer Uh, than in Britain, in spite of its billion-plus population. And again, if you want to get into the, well, China ain't properly capitalist, and I readily uh, accept that, then look at South Korea. Okay, an example of uh, um, highly monopolized uh, capitalism, but again with uh, its small sector. Uh, Here's a country that using uh, British, actually, epidemiology, as I understand it, Um, has handled uh, the um, COVID-19 crisis um, exceedingly well. So, again, I'm I'm not really trying to show New Zealand as an example of a capitalist country. It's clearly a capitalist country, has certain advantages of being in the middle of nowhere. But again, uh, there you are, no COVID cases uh, in New Zealand. So it isn't as simple as saying um, capitalism versus uh, non-capitalism, even under capitalism, uh, this disease, this uh, virus can be coped with um, if there's sufficient uh, um, organization uh, put in place. Okay, Um, let's just move on. Um, Having spoken uh, about COVID um, there's no doubt uh, that uh, the COVID economic downturn um, is one of the most devastating economic downturns in the history of capitalism. And, I, you know, I think you'd have to compare it uh, with 1929, uh, um, you know, in countries like Germany. Um, you'd have to compare it with the, in terms of um, in Britain with the South Sea uh, bubble. Um, you know, we don't know how long this downturn will last, um, but one can hazard a, a reasonable guess uh, that it is going to be for a considerable time. Uh, maybe it's hyperbole, but in terms of um, uh, the restrictions in London, uh, there's talk from the hospitality uh, sector of 200,000 jobs being lost. Over this weekend. Now, I don't know whether that, as I said, whether that's hyperbole uh, or not, uh, but that is the sort of scale uh, that we will see in that sector and in other sectors uh, of uh, the economy. So we have uh, a severe economic uh, downturn. And on top of that, uh, what this government seems prepared to do. Uh, is go for a hard Brexit. Now, again, is this, um, you know, um, clever poker tactics uh, by um, Boris Johnson and his government? I don't know. Um, It's a long time since uh, I've played poker. uh, But uh, having played poker, it isn't just about the cards uh, that you've got in your hand. Uh, It's about actually how much cash, how many chips... Uh, you've got in front of you. In other words, you know, can you afford to lose? And when I look at uh, Britain, and then the EU, my version of it is, well, the EU certainly doesn't want to lose Britain uh, in terms of uh, a trade deal. I, I think that's to state uh, the obvious. On the other hand, when it comes to who, who's prepared to lose, um, for the EU to lose Britain, Um, that's manageable. They don't want it, but it's manageable. It's not going to um, um, hit uh, the EU to the same extent that it will hit Britain. So in that sense, it's up to uh, the Tory government. Uh, And if they are playing here um, some sort of game uh, of poker, um, my suspicion is that their bluff will be called. Uh, On the other hand... Uh, If we look at the country that will suffer most, actually, um, from a hard Brexit, uh, uh, I think it's going to be um, Ireland, not Britain. Uh, Britain will certainly take a big hit. Um, Ireland uh, will take a far bigger um, uh, hit. Now, maybe the EU bails out uh, Ireland. On the other hand, if we look at the level of solidarity in the European Union, one only needs to look at the treatment that was meted out to Greece uh, for its profligate uh, borrowing and its uh, irresponsibility. Uh, uh, I don't know, but it does strike me. Here is Ireland that's sort of been selling itself to transnational corporations on the basis of uh, cheap tax regimes. It's certainly in an extraordinarily vulnerable position uh, to the EU basically ordering it What to do. So Ireland might well not any longer uh, be a British uh, neo colony, uh, but it certainly uh, is a EU neo colony. And of course, what I mean by that fundamentally uh, is France and uh, crucially uh, Germany. Okay. Um, Right. Now, I've argued, um, you know, that you can uh, put um, Brexit, maybe a hard Brexit, uh, down to a number of different uh, factors. Uh, You could say, and no doubt there's a truth there, uh, that it's Boris Johnson and his determination to become Prime Minister no matter what. Uh, That is certainly a factor involved. But there's also uh, the background of the decline of British imperialism its turn to finance capital, uh, deindustrialization, the determination uh, to break uh, the power of uh, trade unions, uh, the anti-trade union laws, and the continuation of that essential regime that was put in place uh, under Margaret Thatcher uh, by Tony Blair. And uh, hence, uh, in terms of the so-called uh, uh, Red Wall uh, constituencies uh, of Labour, uh, the turn um, by significant sections uh, to voting uh, for Boris Johnson uh, on the basis of getting Brexit uh, done. Um, it's illogical in my view. That doesn't mean I think the EU um, should be viewed as um, some sort of f- form of higher capitalism or a beacon of civilization. Either one uh, represents some form of capitalism where what we need actually is independent working class. Politics, but if there was some sort of um, underlying rationale uh, to all of this, uh, it found itself uh, in the form of Donald Trump um, and um, the project of making America great again um, by basically reversing US decline, reshoring industry uh, to the United States, decoupling. Uh, from China. Of course, none of this can be done uh, in any total sense. But nonetheless, under those circumstances, uh, repositioning uh, uh, Britain um, diplomatically, strategically um, uh, and and distancing from the EU made a certain sense. And and, uh, in terms of uh, if Donald Trump uh, remains president, there you are, Boris Johnson Uh, gets his uh, uh, trade deal with the United States um, and uh, Britain has, in terms of other countries, perhaps uh, a privileged uh, position. Maybe that involves opening up uh, the National Health Service to American companies. Maybe uh, it involves horrible um, chickens and uh, uh, all sorts of hormone hormone. Uh, beef and all the rest of it, I don't know. But that at least made a certain sense uh, uh, to me. On the other hand, if you look at things, at least where we sit uh, at the moment, uh, that seems to be uh, unravelling. Uh, I.e., if you look at the latest opinion polls from the United States, they show a pretty um, um, clear pattern, no matter what the company, um, what you've got is Trump well behind uh, the last one I looked at was just before I came online. And it's, it's something like Trump on 44%, uh, Biden, something uh, up in the 50s. Um, so a clear, clear gap. Uh, now, it's certainly true that an awful lot of votes have already been cast. After all, this is in the middle of um, uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Um, so I don't know how much uh, there's been in the way of exit polls and and what the laws are in the United States as regards exit polls and publishing exit polls. Maybe it varies. Maybe Gabby can tell us uh, from state to state. Either way, it looks to me, and I could be disastrously wrong, I was wrong in terms of Trump's first election, I was wrong in terms of Brexit, Uh, but it looks to me Uh, as if he's going to lose. And the talk in the United States at the moment is of the Democrats winning big time. So not only will we have a Democrat president, uh, the chances are that we'll have a Democrat Senate. So there's serious talk uh, before uh, the election proper, before the count uh, of Biden uh, making his position on the Supreme Court clear. Because we know uh, that with the present balance in the Senate and with the president um, um, around until January, uh, that he will get his um, Supreme Court nominee through. That seems to be the case. Um, I've seen her statements on abortion, birth control, same-sex marriage, uh, the question of do, you know, what, what do you think of global. Uh, climate change, it's a contentious issue, uh, she said. So uh, in terms of her politics, they might be Catholic, but they are a particularly bizarre form of Catholicism. But this will shift the Supreme Court from a 4-5 conservative majority to a 3-6 conservative majority, and therefore the talk from the Biden camp uh, of nominating new members Uh, of the Supreme Court. Now, will he nominate it so it's an even balance or will they go uh, shift the balance uh, so that it's uh, a clear liberal um, um, majority? Uh, He's actually saying, I will make my position clear uh, on that one. But the very fact uh, that he's being questioned on that and the very fact that he's um, um, talking about declaring his position, I think backs up The worries uh, from the Republican camp uh, that they are going to suffer um, a huge uh, defeat uh, come November uh, the 3rd. So you have the statement from Trump uh, that if he loses uh, the election, he'll leave the United States. Now, is that fleeing justice? Uh, Is it because he can't possibly be in uh, the United States with a Democrat? Uh, president. uh, I don't know. Uh, But the very fact that that thought is in his head, uh, I think does tell us uh, something about what we should expect. And it it, it again shows you why uh, the Boris Johnson government has been busily rowing back and trying to make links uh, with the Democrats, because not only do they think there will be a Democrat uh, in the White House come next year, Um, you could have a position uh, of where the Democrats uh, are actually um, in control uh, and in control sufficiently uh, to shift the balance um, on the Supreme Court. Now, for liberals, uh, that's a dream come true. Um, All I would do is caution, uh, because uh, I've already mentioned uh, the COVID Uh, economic uh, downturn. And I think, you know, if you want one explanation of uh, why the Trump presidency uh, has unraveled, it is, uh, you know, the little virus that's uh, uh, done it, the appalling handling uh, of uh, the COVID crisis in in the United States. Uh, That's been a major factor. The denialism uh, of Trump, the refusal to wear a mask, uh, equating Uh, COVID with, um, um, uh, you know, a bout of the flu. Uh, All of this, uh, um, I I think, has alienated uh, large numbers. After all, over 200,000 people have died, and I don't think they would just be uh, Democrats that are doing the dying. Presumably, it will be a 50-50, something down the middle. Uh, And therefore, Trump, in terms of denial, this will be something. That given, you know, there, there will hardly be a family in the United States that has gone unaffected, uh, will move people uh, in terms of their attitude uh, uh, to the president. But my main point here uh, is that the Democrats will pick up the wreckage. Uh, so we have the question, who's going to pay for the economic downturn? Who's going to pay uh, for the bailouts, uh, both in Britain, the United States and other Uh, countries. Well, given the Democrats, it's unlikely to be big business. It's unlikely uh, to be the banks. Maybe corporation tax is increased, but ultimately it's going to be the working class of the United States and other countries uh, that the United States can exploit uh, because it is the center of finance capital. Um, And uh, because of the dollar, because of Wall Street, Uh, The United States can suck in uh, wealth from around the world. It can exploit the world. So in that sense, uh, if we look at uh, those that have uh, voted uh, Trump, we need to recognize that they voted Trump last time round in desperation, Uh, not because um, uh, they are incurably bigoted, uh, but because they were alienated. Uh, from the Obama regime and alienated uh, by neoliberal capitalism. You know, they'd seen their industries disappear. Uh, They've seen wages go down. I don't know what the figures are, uh, but broadly speaking, um, in the United States working class, and I mean working class in our sense, working class living standards have broadly flatlined For decade after decade, and Trump might have been able to boast, oh look, wages have gone up, but in broad terms uh, that has been uh, the case. So we've had decades of uh, flatlining uh, living standards, and perhaps the only thing uh, that you can talk about uh, when it comes to living standards is the costs of what Marxists call uh, necessary consumption have been not only kept down, uh, but have been forced down. In other words, if we look at what I'm talking to at the moment, my suspicion is that my computer was made in China, my camera was made in China. uh, I suspect my microphone was made in in China. And those commodities in terms of the cost uh, has gone down and down and down. Um, And it's, remember that this technology You know, a computer now isn't a computer from 20 years ago or 30 uh, years ago. They are vastly more powerful. Uh, um, um, uh, Anyway, the the point I'm making is that paying uh, for the COVID-19 economic uh, crisis uh, will fall um, 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 uh, uh, on uh, the global working class, but it will also fall on the American working class And and therefore, the conditions that bred Trump uh, are actually reinforced. Uh, They're not uh, disappeared. Uh, This isn't a return uh, to the the glory days of uh, uh, Democrat-Republican consensus of the 1950s or 1960s. And I know you had Nixon then and uh, all the rest of it. Uh, But politics are polarized. uh, And I think we should expect politics to continue to polarise. And therefore, the left to simply back the Democrats, uh, I think, is a strategic mistake. Now, that's not to say never, ever, ever, ever sort of type idea. That's, that's ridiculous. And I'd certainly back candidates who are standing uh, for the Democrats uh, if they are members of the uh, Democratic Socialists of America. But the American working class faces the same sort of choice that the working-class movement did in Britain in the 19th century. And that is, do you keep backing the Liberal Party on the basis of keeping the Tory party out, or do you take the risk uh, and make the break uh, and go for your own party? Um, the trade unions were very reluctant to do that. It was the Taft Vale judgment uh, that persuaded many either way if we look at politics in britain what you had is small socialist organizations that were making that agitation the very name independent labor party tells you what its its program was it was going to be independent of uh, the liberal party now that was um a fiction in in many senses and it's why many contemporary Uh, Marxists such as Lenin, when they were writing about the ILP, and we're talking, remember, early 20th century, um, late 19th century, would put a quote mark around the term independent uh, Labour Party. They said independent Labour Party with a sneer. Nonetheless, uh, uh, these organizations such as the ILP, such as the Social Democratic Federation, were getting a hearing in the working class and in the trade union. Uh, movement, their agitation around breaking uh, from the Liberal Party was having an effect. In other words, when they broke, when the trade unions started to break from the uh, Liberal Party, uh, this wasn't in a vacuum. Uh, This was after many, many years of argument by the left. And that's what we are looking uh, to the left to do in the United States, to make the argument for an independent workers party. Now, we know that that doesn't exist. We know that when it comes uh, to the election, uh, presidential election, there is no such uh, uh, candidate, um, You candidate know, nationally. Uh, we know that. Nevertheless, that's the argument that needs uh, to be made. Now, in terms of the run-up to the actual election, and we're talking here Uh, Not about the postal ballot, but um, polling stations, this could be the opportunity uh, for the Trump side uh, to unleash uh, civil unrest. Um, You know, we've all heard the statement. We got it on the front page of uh, uh, this week's Weekly Worker from Trump to the um, proud boys, not proud boy, as we've got it, proud boys to, you know, uh, stand ready. Uh, We also have it uh, from Donald Trump Jr. And he's calling for a, quote, unquote, an election security operation. Uh, And I think what he means by that is for right wing militia uh, to stand outside um, um, polling stations and basically to act as a a force of intimidation. Um, And that can have an effect Uh, When it comes to marginal uh, states, we know who they are going to target. Now, what will the police do under those circumstances? Well, um, my suspicion would be uh, that the I think we've got something burning in here. Excuse me, I'm just going to um, take a quick break, uh, Stan, because I don't I hope my house isn't on fire. So let me just uh, check okay so yes in terms of um, uh, polling uh, on the actual day uh, it looks like you could have uh, trouble what will the police do my guess is that the police force uh, will look look on uh, with benign uh, sympathy Uh, the police force will be pro-trump it will be uh, anti-democrat it will associate the democrats Uh, with Black Lives Matter and the slogan of abolish or defund uh, the police force. On the other hand, do I think uh, that the United States stands on the edge of civil war? Uh, That I would disagree with. Uh, I don't see the army splitting. I don't see um, uh, the states forming their own national militia um, um, in, in terms of taking on Uh, the uh, standing army. Uh, I I don't see the army uh, defending uh, Donald Trump. Uh, No doubt he will um, contest the election uh, on some level, but if it's overwhelming, uh, as it looks like it could well be, maybe he simply uh, recognises facts, um, leaves the White House, and maybe, yeah, uh, leaves the country. Either way, the very fact that you can speculate Uh, about the possibility of real civil unrest from the right um, shows a remarkable deterioration um, um, in bourgeois politics um, in uh, the United States. It's quite clear uh, that uh, Trump isn't um, running the United States in the interests of all the capitalist class. It's a sectional uh, question. Um, in terms of the Democrats, of course, they're no less tied to Wall Street, no less tied uh, to finance, uh, uh, capital. Uh, but the point remains uh, that this is um, symptomatic of um, big power uh, uh, decline and managing big power decline um, in a very bad way. Okay. Okay. Um, Right. Moving on, um, just very quickly, um, Unite, the Union, um, £1 million less in terms of donations to the Labour Party. I don't think that this is going to matter too much uh, to Keir Starmer. Um, He's still got a mass uh, membership, um, sections of the uh, donating capitalist class, will look upon his performance in terms of COVID-19 and say, well, Boris Johnson had a bad COVID-19, but Keir Starmer's had a good COVID-19. So in terms of an alternative government, uh, maybe they'll make up uh, for the million pounds. I don't know. Just again, quickly on the Labour Party, um, people who are in Uh, the Labour Party will be getting their uh, ballots very soon for the NEC elections. These are the National Executive Committee elections. There are nine uh, seats elected by the constituency Labour Party. Uh, Others come um, from the Parliamentary Labour Party, from councillors, from affiliated societies, from trade unions, uh, etc. Now, what makes these elections different is that under normal circumstances, uh, the left, however you define that, would expect to win nine seats. Sometimes it hasn't managed that because it's cocked up, uh, but in general, uh, that would be the case. But this time round, under Keir Starmer, what we've got is a single transferable vote system. Um, So what passes for the official left, which I think now calls itself grassroots voice, they are standing six uh, candidates and basically their message is vote for the six and anyone else who stands on the left is splitting the vote. Well, that's just uh, nonsense. In a single transferable vote, quite frankly, you could vote 42 times. Now, your 42nd vote would be for a right winger, I would hope, um, and it wouldn't count. It would get a- eliminated uh, uh, very quickly. Um, um unless it was uh, one of the, was it six they got from the right wing? I don't know. Uh, Either way, uh, the main point I'm making is no standing left wing wing candidates does not split the vote. Uh, So uh, we would be saying to comrades, vote uh, for the candidates of the Labour-left alliance uh, first. Uh, So put them number one. Uh, down to either number six or number seven. I'm not sure how many candidates they are backing. Last time I looked, it was actually seven. Um, But then we would urge uh, comrades to back uh, the official uh, left candidates in the order of priority uh, that they are recommending. And we'd also urge uh, uh, comrades to back uh, the candidates of the Labour-left alliance in the order of priority that they list. So I would guess at the top of the list would be Roger Silverman, who's done brilliantly. Um, he's got seventy uh, nominations from CLPs. Now that doesn't mean that uh, they, you know, there are seventy um, constituency Labour parties in the pocket of the left. Um, you could presumably nominate nine uh, uh, people, but he's been nominated by seventy meetings of the CLPs, presumably, well, they have to be, don't they, um, online. So I don't know how much of a chance he's got, but at least he's got a chance. And if he actually got on, uh, that would be a very important uh, victory uh, for the left of the Labour Party. And I'm talking about a more principled left, not the official left. Uh, Roger Silverman's got a principled line on the witch hunt. He opposes it. He dares say openly Unequivocally. Uh, and I think he needs support uh, as well as the other candidates uh, that have been selected by um, the Labour left alliance. Um, Scotland. Uh, this week there was uh, an opinion poll by um, Ipsos uh, Mori uh, that had 58 uh, percent of Scottish people backing um, independence. The explanation for that is very straightforward, very simple. It's called COVID-19. Again, the perception uh, that Boris Johnson has handled COVID-19 appallingly, while uh, Nicola Sturgeon has had a good COVID-19. Uh, I think that's very much in terms of uh, perceptions. If we look at the death rate, if you look at the infection rate, uh, Scotland isn't another country. Um, you know, it's it shows a very similar pattern uh, to England and Wales and uh, Northern Ireland, i.e. it's bad in international uh, terms. It has to be said, uh, on the other hand, that um, the Scottish government get the hand that is dealt to them uh, by Westminster. Um, you know, um, they haven't gone for their own um, uh, tax raising uh, regime. Um, either way. Um, Nicola Sturgeon's had a good COVID-19 and that's boosted her ratings, boosted the ratings um, of um, the SNP and boosted those that are supporting uh, the SNP's bid uh, to have a second referendum. Remember the first referendum, 2014, 44% um, voted um, for independence. The other factor, of course, Uh, is Brexit. And the more uh, that we look like we're in for a hard Brexit, uh, the more, um, you know, the um, um, attractiveness of an independent Scotland um, increases. I have to say, though, uh, that in the real world, if that actually happened, uh, Scotland would be facing an economic disaster. Uh, Imagine a Scotland voted for independence. It's let in. Uh, to the European Union, okay, does it keep the pound? Um, does it adopt uh, the euro? Whatever happens, if if what looks like is going to happen happens, i.e. a hard Brexit, we then have a border, um, not only between Northern Ireland and uh, Southern Ireland, but also between Scotland and England. And, uh, well, no doubt Scotland's got... Uh, Important economic ties with the EU, but by far its most important and historically established ties, of course, will be with um, England, stroke Wales. Uh, you put a border there, and I would predict um, businesses moving, businesses closing down. Uh, I would also predict uh, the movement of people. Um, you know, if Ireland exported uh, huge numbers of people. Uh, both in the 19th century, but also in the 20th century as an independent uh, country after 1920. Um, Scotland, the same thing would happen with Scotland. Uh, it would bleed people uh, to the south. Um, so my my position would be, be careful what you, you wish for. Now, from our point of view, uh, we recognise a, a Scottish national question. Uh, there's clearly... Uh, a feeling of Scottishness. There's clearly dissatisfaction with the Westminster government in recent years, and we are maybe talking, you know, decade, a decade or two. Uh, Scotland has voted uh, anti-Tory. And yet England has voted Tory. That's, how, that's again, how things are viewed. Uh, and yet Scotland, in spite of not voting Tory, uh, gets a, a, a Tory um, budget. It gets a Tory budget. Uh, agenda Um, and the tragedy is uh, that that is backed uh, by wide swathes uh, of uh, the left uh, in Scotland and it's interesting um, that um, uh, when I've seen Alex Salmond interviewed um, on this question he simply says that this is obviously when he's leader um, he said simply says well I think that Scotland will be better off with a close relationship to you know, um, the, what, you know, what remains of the UK. This is on the basis of um, um, continued membership, obviously, of the EU. We'd, we'd prosper. And maybe that would be uh, the case. But when he's asked about, is Scotland an oppressed nation? He actually turned around and laughed. He said, well, no, no, of course, Scotland is not an oppressed nation. And it's on the left that you get this, um, you know, tartan myth. Of Scotland being an oppressed nation. So, if you read that dreadful book uh, jointly written, supposedly by Tommy Sheridan and Alan McCombs, um, imagine you get all the myths of uh, Scottish uh, oppression fighting for independence against the expansive English. It's all bullshit uh, um, history. Uh, ch- ch- you know, it, uh, it's bedtime story type uh, history. The fact of the matter is that, you know, if you, you, you can talk in that period, in terms of medieval history, about a king of England, that's certainly true, and maybe a king of Scotland. But could you actually talk um, about an England in any meaningful sense, uh, in terms of it being a national uh, identity? I would uh, question uh, that very strongly. And in terms of kings of England, were they English? Well, We all know that when it came to people like, uh, you know, Richard I, you know, Lionheart and all that, they spent most of their lives outside England. And that wasn't exceptional uh, when it came to those sorts of kings. And when it comes to um, Scottish kings, it's worthwhile remembering that the name of... um, um, What's his name? Let um, me uh, think. Sorry, Robert King Robert. His father. Excuse for the mental uh, breakdown. The name of his father was Robert de Bruce. He was Norman. Norman. And again, I'm not saying that in any national sense. But uh, you know, his 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 his, um, his, his background was feudal. And we need to understand these people as feudalists, uh, not in terms of modern history and modern national identity. And what is true uh, of um, the feudal lords, um, you know, Robert Bruce, for example, had uh, landownings in Nottinghamshire, uh, for example, as I understand it. What we need to understand also um, is going to be true of the common Uh, People, Most people did not have an English national identity, and they certainly didn't have a Scottish national identity. And if we look at 1715 and 1745, this was as much a Scottish civil war um, as well as being a dynastic uh, um, um, uprising. Uh, This certainly wasn't Scotland versus England. You know, there we had, um, um, you know, in terms of um, on the Stuart side, um, precisely um, someone whose lineage is feudal. Precisely what we had is him being able to mobilize some clans, uh, i.e. maybe even pre-feudal social uh, formation. Um, And what we then saw Uh, is uh, the Georgian state mobilized not only um, troops, um, English troops that were taken from the continent, but also Hanoverian troops taken from the continent. And when a a feudal army met a capitalist army, um, it was wipeout uh, time and Culloden uh, was a, a massacre by a capitalist army of a feudal army. But in terms of Scotland, what you had um, is in the lowlands, you had a Lallands, an English-speaking, and an England-looking intelligentsia. Um, and that needs to be understood, that if you take the term, for example, Northern Britain, uh, this is a Scottish invention or an invention made in Scotland. So the, the myths that have that been put forward by the left, Scotland being an oppressed nation, miss all of that out. And they also miss out that after 1745 and rapid uh, capitalist development, not only in England, but also in Scotland, is uh, that uh, Scottish middle classes, Scottish aristocrats, uh, benefit mightily uh, from the expansion Um, of the British Empire, and the access they have uh, to um, political careers and careers in the law and all the rest of it that open up a fortune uh, for them that would have been closed off um, um, in a uh, non-integrated Scotland. Um, Okay. So... Uh, again um, just the emphasis on the necessity of independent working class politics not trailing uh, uh, the nationalists and the danger uh, of trailing the nationalists if you trail the nationalists people will blame you uh, for what happens uh, when the chickens come home uh, to roost Um, our position is quite clear because there's a national question we stand by the right of scotland Uh, to self-determination, that doesn't just mean a referendum too, that should be the right of the Scottish Parliament uh, to have a simple vote on independence. In other words, uh, in these coming elections, if the SNP stand on the basis of independence, uh, and that's what people vote for, that is what should happen. It's not for us to get into the negotiations, but that is what should happen. You don't need a referendum um, um, on this. Uh, Question. But having said that, do we actually advocate uh, independence? No, uh, we don't advocate um, independence. The situation uh, is not one uh, that independence would strengthen uh, the unity of the working class. And you can actually have a situation of where uh, the separation of two states strengthens the unity uh, of the working class. It's not as simple. Uh, are saying that one country becomes independence and that splits the working class. If the working class is already split, uh, then this can be uh, a a measure to actually unite uh, the working class. So these things uh, are complex. But the key is, from our point of view, the working class in England championing the right of the Scottish people uh, to decide uh, their own uh, future. And to the extent that working-class unity is re-established, then the need to call for uh, um, a federal republic uh, or for self-determination disappears. And we want a situation uh, of where we head towards um, a centralised republic, not only uh, in the British Isles, uh, but in Europe uh, and um, eventually, of course, Uh, to world socialism, where states themselves uh, rapidly um, start to wither uh, away. Just a very quick footnote on Scotland, the forthcoming uh, elections to the Hollywood uh, Parliament. It's a two-tier system. It's a constituency vote, but there's also some sort of top-up vote. And in terms of the top-up vote, there's an organisation that was called the Alliance for independence that is standing just in that list uh, uh, system. And the reason they're doing that is to actually strengthen the hand of the SNP, because the SNP did so well last time round in the constituency um, um, side um, um, of the ballot that apparently it lost out. Uh, when it came to the top-up system. I don't understand the ins and outs of it, but that's as I'm told, that's as I understand it. Now, the Election Commission, for whatever reasons, and I don't know why, said that the Alliance for Independence was a misleading name and you aren't allowed to use it. And I go myself, what the, what right has a, a, a bureaucrat to decide that you can't stand under the name Alliance for Independence. I mean, it is an alliance, as I understand it. It is for independence. What's wrong with that? But anyway, they were disallowed, and they're now standing under the name Action for Independence. Well, that apparently is okay. Now, in terms of their alliance, uh, one of the organizations that are included in it is something called Solidarity, Those those of you who know something of Scottish politics and the left will know who that is. Uh, That's Tommy Sheridan and his um, uh, supporters, the ones that broke away from the Scottish Socialist Party. Um, And you all know that particular story. But Tommy Sheridan has a real chance um, uh, under this uh, banner of actually getting back into Hollywood. Um, It will be interesting to see. Worthwhile noting Uh, that at the moment he um, hasn't pursued his legal career, as I understand it, uh, but is working for the Russian uh, TV station Sputnik. And uh, reading the Scottish press, I hear that he's describing the poisoning of the Shripples as a hoax. I don't think they would have thought that that was the case. Okay, just lastly, um, what's the time? think I've gone on long enough, so I'll be very brief with this one. Just wanted to bring comrades' uh, attention to the article in this week's Weekly Worker by Ben Lewis, marking the 100th anniversary of um, Zinoviev's uh, four-hour speech at Halle uh, in front of the Independent Social Democratic Party Congress. And the reason I wanted to point it out isn't because I think uh, that uh, Gregory Zinoviev, the president of Comintern, made such a fantastic speech that he won uh, that Congress to vote to affiliate uh, to the Communist International and uh, fuse with the Communist Party of Germany. I don't really suspect that he won many votes. He might have won a few. It was certainly an achievement uh, to speak four hours. And if you read Ben's uh, translation, it's... Uh, Uh, A fantastic speech because he's been heckled um, constantly uh, all the way through it. He handles the heckling brilliantly. Uh, He doesn't dress up the Soviet regime to be anything that it um, isn't. He's uh, honest uh, about the situation uh, that they face. Uh, And it's true that afterwards the bourgeois press uh, um, say that this was the speech of the century. Okay, Um, This is at the beginning of the 20th century, so maybe it's not saying that much. But the main point that I want to bring out from this um, speech is the Haller Congress itself. Uh, And to contrast the uh, seriousness that the German comrades treated themselves with when it came to the question of affiliation uh, to um, the Third International compared with our contemporary left, uh, and its various projects. I'm thinking of Left Labour Alliance. I'm thinking of Socialist Alliance. I'm thinking of the Scottish Socialist Party. I'm thinking of Left Unity. Uh, one can just carry on down the list. And what you don't get is the time. Uh, what you don't get is to hear the arguments presented in a serious fashion and then questioned in a serious uh, fashion and then debated out in a thorough uh, way you know what we've got used to and what many comrades unfortunately on the left have internalized um is um two for two against three minute speeches maybe five minute speeches and then a vote uh, and to me that's uh, an illustration of um, um trivializing uh, politics uh, so the last uh, uh, um Uh, a conference um, that I attended of that sort was the founding uh, conference of uh, Left Labour uh, Alliance. And before they decided what sort of an organization uh, they were going to be politically, they were already debating, you know, um, all manner uh, of different issues. And when they came to deciding what sort of an organization they were going to be, i.e. a Marxist organization, a social democratic uh, organization, Uh, Yeah, then you got onto the five minute speeches, um, three minutes to reply, votes up, and uh, yeah, what a contrast uh, with the independent Social Democratic Party that met over a week and had the space uh, to listen not only to Gregory Zinoviev, uh, but also a comrade reading out the speech of uh, Jules Martov, the leader of the Menshevik internationalists. He was ill. Uh, Therefore, he couldn't attend in person, but his speech was read out. You had speeches uh, by comrades on the left, but you also had Hilferding, um, Austro-Marxist speaking again um, extensively. That is the sort of culture uh, that the left needs to rediscover. We need to treat our debate seriously uh, and not, um, you know, instant polling. Uh, That is something, you know, that's characteristic of um, referendums not even the bourgeois parliament uh, would uh, um, behave in such a trivial uh, fashion it's so tragic that the left uh, does that's it thanks Stan.